Hey everyone, welcome to the Mother of Monarch podcast. I'm Maxine McCallum, and together we are going on a journey of personal growth, motivation, mindfulness, and self-discovery. Embrace the spirit of resilience and the beauty of transformation as we dive into life, business, friendship, motherhood, and everything in between. Let's get started. On this week's episode, Dana Hill, founder of The Black Doll Affair, joined me to chat about self-confidence. Dana has been such an important person in my life and is such an inspiration in my personal journey. I always knew there was a reason Dana and I connected, but I couldn't believe the similarities in our life paths that caused us both to seek our own strength and confidence. We could have talked for hours, and I'm thrilled to share this episode with you. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as we did. Hey, everybody. It's Maxine McCallum, and today it's a meeting of the mothers here on the Mother of Monarch podcast. Sitting with me is Dana Hill, founder of The Black Doll Affair. Hey, Mama Doll. Hey, girl. Hey. So I do really want to quickly get into just about you, who you are, how you started your movement, uh, and then we will move into the juicy details. Okay, cool. So what I, I so 52 years, it is, I don't know, I, I don't want to know. I don't want to be able to answer the question, who are you? Yeah. Right? Because it's so boxing in. Yeah. And so that's why when people say, I don't really like her, or, or I don't, or, I've stopped saying, I don't think she likes me. Mm. You don't know me to like me. Hell, I don't know me to, to to put that type of stamp on me. Yeah. Right. So I'm I'm burgeoning. But to to get to rewind and answer your question about the movement was that yes. the question? Yes. <laughs> what is the Black Doll Affair? Obviously, I know a ton about it, and I'm a huge supporter. But I want to hear it from your from your lips. So the the Black Doll Affair is my story. In a nutshell, it's my story. I've not set it up to be the typical business. Mm -hmm. You know, if I trip and fall down a flight of steps when I leave here, that's the end of the Black Doll Affair. I haven't set it up so that it goes on because it is me. I'm the flower in the cake. Mm -hmm. It rises because of me. And when I fall, it'll fall because of me. And I want that legacy to be there, but I don't want it to go on. Okay. Which is weird. Yeah. Um, but that's the truth. It is um, my story in the sense that uh, I am, I am the black doll. Mm -hmm. I am, I am, I started it because of the doll test where black children chose the black doll as bad, ugly, and the one they didn't want to play with. Yeah. And um, I realized in 2007 when I started it that my whole life was because I'm the black doll. I'm from Oklahoma City. My parents were Hal and Edna, and my father was the Idris Elba of Oklahoma City. Damn. I mean, like, like seriously. That's why you I, and your sister are so attractive. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, two more Hill Girls were where we came from. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, I haven't seen haven't them, them, so yet. I can only imagine that they're just as gorgeous. <laughs> thank you, Maxine. So um, the legacy of the Hill Girls is that he was blue black. I mean, just just as black as he wanted to be. Right. Um, and had this smile and this charisma and this voice and this swagger that just, and you don't know this, but in the black community, there's this, this colorism is real. You know, okay. if you're, if you're blue, black, or the blacker you are, the lower on the totem pole you are. Interesting. And then, you know, the, the lighter you are and how do we get light? The more white people in our, in our, in our genes, the better. And so my father was not that. And so he was very unique. 
and he was six seven, six 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 seven, and just just handsome, mm-hmm. and everybody knew it. And he was this charismatic character that women were like, "I want some of that." Mm-hmm. And he was like, "Okay, you can have some." Hence, my parents' <laughs> divorce. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> you get Tuesday and you get Wednesday and you get Thursday. <laughs> Double booked on Friday. <laughs> Early and a late dinner seating. Exactly. <laughs> oh, hell. <laughs> oh, hell. <laughs> so Hal Hill married my mom. When she met him, she was in high school and she pulled up at a stoplight. And he was with his friends in a car and she was with her friends. And she said, that's my husband. Wow. I'm going to marry him. And they're like, so anyway, she found him and they started dating and they got married on Christmas Day. (gasps) And when my father started dating her, everybody thought like, what the hell is he doing? Marrying down. Oh. Because she was so dark. And she was, she was caramel colored, lighter than me, but it wasn't the standard in the day. Like, you know, it was, she didn't pass the brown bag tests, which black people used to do back in the day. If you're darker than a brown bag, you're not in. So, but my father boldly married my mom. And as a little girl, as little girls, we would hear like, you know, oh, the Hill girls, you know, of Hal had just married lighter. Oh. You know, so I, I, I grew up in this, this legacy of like being a Hill girl and not having the expectation of potential. And hearing and knowing that people expected us to be ugly, you know, and, and you know, we didn't get the luxury of, of growing into, into our, we didn't get the luxury of being awkward kids. We heard what people said about us because of my father Gosh, how and horrible. who he married. And my mother was beautiful, but she was dark. So anyway, um, I don't know other than fate. You know, at some point, like my oldest sister, Sherry, she became an Ebony Fashion Fair model for Ebony Magazine. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking at her in the newspaper. With the, and she was she was really tall, like six. She is really tall, six one. Mm-hmm. And these cheekbones and dark skin. And so each one of us kind of came into our own. And but for me, I was I was middle child and late. And my my parents ended up getting a divorce because <laughs> the, the multi-woman work week didn't work for my mama. <laughs> there are very few women that works for her, I want to say. She wasn't here for it. So they got a divorce, and I was daddy's little girl. Mm-hmm. And people used to say, oh, my God, she's like a spitting image of her father. Which, you know, it's great if you're a boy, but <laughs> right. I wasn't. Um, but I didn't care because I just thought, like, what a beautiful man, and I just admired him. And so when I found out my parents were getting a divorce, I thought, like, What's what's going to happen? Like, what does this mean for us? Yeah. And I fell apart. Mm-hmm. I, I literally, I didn't know that I had eczema, which is triggered through stress. Mm-hmm. And so my skin broke out and eczema is best friends with asthma. Mm-hmm. And so not only was my skin just a wreck, but I couldn't breathe. I mean, me walking down the hall was just a sight to see. And I, 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 just, I just emotionally was trying to explain to everybody what that divorce meant for me. And so I would scratch my skin, like, open to the point of infection. And I scratched out all my hair. 
And so there was these big patches of like, you know, raw skin and Mm -hmm. no hair. And and of course, I became like perfect for schoolyard bullies. Yeah. You know, and I was like the talk of the school. You come in here and let us do what we do. My stories are way more similar than I thought. Yeah. Because I had psoriasis and it was triggered. It was brought on by my parents' divorce is when it first started coming out. And it's the same thing, right? Shows up in patches on your hair and on your body. And um, mine definitely wasn't that bad. I definitely tried to hide it a lot more, but I I was bullied a ton too. So triggered. Yeah. Right. Anyway, I retreated because my mother was in her own world. She was a young mom with four girls. Um, And I retreated to the girls' bathroom. That was like my place to escape from all the bullying and teasing. And I always say that's where the Black Doll Affair was started. Because in the mornings, my my mother was one of the first black secretaries for Exxon Oil Company. So her, her, her parents, my grandparents, really took care of us a lot. And my grandparents would put me in a Fizoderm bath, kind of like the Tin Man, and kind of, you know, all my dried parts would no. become moisturized and I could move again. Yeah. <laughs> Just Oil and Dana over here. <laughs> like, seriously? <laughs> That's a book. Oil and Dana. <laughs> Oil and Dana. Uh, it's a new chapter in the book. <laughs> Um, and so, but I would say to my parents, my grandparents, I need to get up really early so I could be the first on the school bus. And they would, they would say, I don't know why this baby wants to be the first on the school bus at like before the sun comes up. But I knew once they anointed oil Dana and put on the moisturizer and I could get to the school bus, I knew that if I could be the first person on the school bus and not the last, then I could get the first seat on the back of the bus. Mm. Because at the back of the bus, they couldn't hit me in the back of the head and in all my sore spots and sing the song, it's about time, it's about place, it's about time you grow some hair in that space. And every kid would get on the bus and like hit me. But if I got in the back of the bus, they couldn't because I was at the back. Yeah. So every so that was my childhood. And then when I got to school, when everybody was socializing, to avoid that, I'd go into the girls' bathroom. I did, too. I ate lunch there. Yeah, I did, too. Yeah. <gasps> wow. <Huh>? Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, sometimes you meet a person. The second I met you, there was something about you. I just knew that you were going to be in my life. And sometimes wow. that energy just tells you before you even know why you're connected to somebody. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. That I mean, like that that that's crazy. Yeah. Wow. And so I ate lunch in the girls' bathroom, mm-hmm. and and here's where I say because when the when in class I was fine because the teachers would teach, but then when everybody went to lunch, and I was out in that element again, I'm like, nope, I'm going into the girls' bathroom. Mm-hmm. So I'd go into the girls' bathroom, and in the girls' bathroom, I think I became who I am to this day. Because I learn human nature. I learn that adults are just big kids that either get it or they don't. Yeah. And so the principal would come in and she'd flip her hair and she'd put on her lipstick and she'd step right over me. She's the principal. Right. Never asking, like, why are you in here every day? What's going on at home? Are you okay? And I would just sit and like look at her primping in the mirror and then stepping over me in and out and go, huh, that's interesting. And then the teachers wouldn't come in and say, you know, is everything okay at home? You should meet this girl. She's new. 
like nothing. And then the popular girls would come in with their crew. And they were just as mean as bullies are. But then there was a level of popularity where the second girl in charge would see me and she'd look at me, but she didn't know what to do with me because she wanted to be first in charge. And so I could see her mm-hmm. not see me. Right. And then the people below her who were just the tagalongs trying not to not be popular. Right. Would look at me with the the sympathy in their eyes like, you know, I would if I could, but I can't, so I won't. Yeah, I can't lose my place here, but I see you. But I see you. Yeah. And so fast forward for whatever reasons, around 13, 14, 15, my my mother divorced my dad, remarried as first one of the first secretaries for Exxon Oil Company. She married an engineer for Exxon. And so we went from like, you know, growing up in an all black neighborhood to moving to Edmond, Oklahoma, which was middle class, Mm -hmm. and then moving to Houston to a a neighborhood called Wimbledon Estates in Spring, Texas, where Farrah Fawcett's mother had a house, you know, and being the only black family and at that time, like, I just, I started to look like my dad and my mom. And everybody started to say things like, wow, you're really pretty. And then we graduated. And I say we, because Felicia and I, because she's only 17 months older than I. And we decided to go model. And on, and on the streets of, of wherever we live, Philadelphia, New York, people would be like, oh, my God, you guys are like twins. You should model. Yeah. And so we decided to do that. But then... um. As much as people would say on the streets we should model, and as pretty as we were, it's 20-year-old typical models, we'd go into the agencies, and they'd say they weren't that impressed, you know? And it's like, ah, well, you know, we've got our dark-skinned girls or our black girls. We've got our one. We've got our one. We've got our one. And then I would look around and see a thousand Maxines and be like, well, I mean, can we have two? Yeah. How many comp cards of white women are sitting on that wall along the one? Yeah. Yeah. And so one day Volusia got a modeling contract and I and I was like in Reinhard Modeling Agency, which was a big deal. And I didn't. And I was like, you know what? I'm done. Mm -hmm. I'm done. These people are idiots. (laughs) If they can't figure out what to do with you and I, first of all, we we don't fit society's mold. We are dark skin. We are unique. We are, you know, we're just damn near twins. Like if they can't figure out how to market this, I don't want them to be my agent anyway because they're not good marketers. Yeah. So she went on and everything Valicia did, I tried to do. Okay. And I, if she showed up in the newspaper, I showed up in the newspaper. If she was doing a catalog, I was doing a catalog. Like, And it taught me how to market. Right. Myself. And then fast forward, we separated, did our things. Um, I decided to go to school for, 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 I decided I didn't want to be the smiling face, you know, where nobody wanted my opinion. Right. I wanted to do this. I can't imagine a world in which <laughs> Dana Hill doesn't have a voice. Me I mean, that just, <laughs> not <Me> right. <laughs> so I, I was like, I want to use my voice. Mm-hmm. So I decided to go to school for television broadcasting and moved to, to Fort Lauderdale and enrolled in television broadcasting. Met two incredible people, of which I'm still friends with. One is one of the biggest, which we've talked about, one of the biggest uh, reality show 
directors, Duran Ophir in Hollywood and Marie, who's one of the most beautiful people I've ever seen, um, businesswoman now in, in South Florida, but um, graduated, then decided after going to work for WSVN Deco Drive in Miami, Fox News. Yeah. Um, and, and that was really cool until uh, they sent me out for my first news story. And I was so excited to do it. And it was a it was a hard news because Deco Drive was it was I think it's still on notoriously not even notoriously known for entertainment. OK. And um, Meg Porter, who was my producer, she sent me out to to she sat me down to do this story about a little boy that was hit on the Miami Causeway. Oh, gosh. And the tr- by an 18 wheeler who didn't know that he had hit him. <gasps> And it was called "What a Drag." Oh my they gosh! Called the story "What a Drag" because they because he didn't know that he hit him and he dragged this child. So Meg's like, "You got your first hard news story. Like, go for it, Dana." And I was like crying and writing the story and thinking about the mom and the dad yeah. and the grandparents and everybody. And I delivered it to her before five o'clock, and she's like, "What is this?" And I was like, "Well, well what do you mean? It's my news story." And she was like, "Dana, what? This is this is way too much hard." Oh, for for hard news. Okay. She's like in this industry, if it lead, if it bleeds, it leads. Okay. And I was like, whoa. So anyway, she revamped my story, and it made it to the five o'clock news. They they called it what a drag, and they almost lost their 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 license because of it. Oh really? Oh yeah. I mean, come on. Was your name anywhere near it? No, no, no. Oh, I t- thank she, she took it. She she mine was way too fluffy. Okay. So I said to her, I'm out of here. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And so as my nephew starts at Channel 5 in South Carolina as we speak. That's exciting. (laughs) It's so exciting. Um, And so I I ended up uh, enrolling in in a business class uh, uh, studies at Linden University in Boca. Mm -hmm. And I only needed to do two years. And just before I graduated... Um, my friend invited me to dinner with Dan Marino. Okay. And he was he he was he was in the restaurant industry, and we were supposed to go to dinner in West Palm Beach. And he called me and was like, "DH, I can't make it. You know, going to dinner." Danny finally returned our call, and I was like, "Uh, I want to go." Yeah. He's like, "You'll be bored. You want to go?" I'm like, "Trust me, I want. Yeah, <laughs> I want to go." <laughs> So I go to dinner with like some of the uh, some of the original Hooters Six, which are the guys that started Hooters restaurants. Okay, Dave Lagashel, rest his soul. He was the president of LTP, which had like eighteen stores, uh, Hooters stores. Okay, and they were opening up twenty plus restaurants in South Florida. Wow! And one of them, one of the chains, was Dan Marino's Town Tavern. And I'm sitting through this business meeting going god this is good this is good luck yeah <laughs> this is good luck and you know these guys are are you know i don't want to so i'll just say this hooters owners yeah right boys club and they're court and dan marino for steakhouse and so they're talking business and at the end of the meeting they turn it to me like okay we've done all the business we'll talk to the pretty girl like what do you do yeah and I was like, uh, well, I'm in school for business marketing and communication. I have a degree in broadcasting and I'm a hell of a marketer. And so who's doing the marketing for these restaurants? 
and Lags was like, we haven't even broken ground yet. I was like, great, I haven't graduated from college yet. And he goes, are you serious? And I said, yeah, I graduate in two weeks. Wow. Long story short, I get a job working for Dan Marino. And my only, I said, you can pay me whatever you want. I just want the title of director of marketing and publicity for Dan Marino's restaurants. I want to work for Hooters. Yeah. And, 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 and no shade in my, in, in Atlanta, when I first got to Atlanta, I was a Hooters girl. So, you know, I, I, I had a floral yeah. <laughs> life and, but I didn't want that in my career. Right. It gave you me know, that. Yeah. And, um, worked for Danny until he retired. And then when he retired, I started working for all of these players that I met from like Alonzo Mourning and Jason Taylor and O.J. McDuffie, like all the who's who of the Miami Dolphins in the 90s. That's awesome. And one day we were, you know, I'm working on this client profile and, I, and this was in the heart of South Beach. And, and like the party heart of like, you know, everybody going to South Beach to party and we could get the models to show up. And so one day, um, I think it was OJ that was like, Dana, you ought to just do everything. These models aren't showing up. They're partying. Yeah. You should be the face. You should be the marketer. You could be the publicist. Like you could be a one-stop shop. So I was like, yeah, I'll do that. And so I decided to do it. And I decided to do it big. I was like, I'm going to create a campaign in Times Square using everything I've learned up until now, knowing that my chocolate skin isn't used enough, knowing that I'm smart, knowing that I can be the face of someone's campaign, but I could also teach these corporations how to diversify. Basically what all of America... American corporations did and, and or most American corporations did after George Floyd's death. Yeah. But this was. But this was 1990. Yeah. This was 2000, uh, 2005, six. Yeah. You no. The change you this, wanted to see. I was the change I wanted to see. And so took out a billboard 32 feet high by 52 feet wide on the busiest street in the world on Broadway next to Puff Daddy's billboard down the street from Oprah Winfrey Studios. I mean, Times Square. And it just simply had a picture of me and you can Google Dana Hills Times Square billboard. And it had a picture of me and I'm just wearing a bikini bottom. And that was on purpose. You know, my mama was like, where's your clothes? <laughs> but that was on purpose. I wanted my father's skin to mm -hmm. show. I wanted them to hire my blackness. Yes. Right. <clears throat> but I also wanted this. So once you logged on to GodSpokesModel.com, you also saw like, wow, this girl's accomplished. She's not yes. just a pretty face. A so I wanted that irony all yes. throughout. Yeah. Right. And so I created these proposals for companies like MacArthur's Milk, where, you know, they had the Got Milk campaign was very popular yep. at the time. And I was like, what about if we did like chocolate milk? You know, yep. Steve Madden had a cologne out called Black. All his models were white. Interesting. <clears throat> so I was like, hey, Steve. Yeah. You know, so uh, put out these proposals, sent them out to the, the news stations and crickets. And then a millionaire white guy took out a billboard next to, to mine, not next to mine, but on a New York freeway looking for a wife. <laughs> and the news stations went crazy over his story. And I was like, I'm dead in the water. Yeah. They only do one type of story. Right. 
and this is their billboard story. So I took my billboard down, moved to Atlanta, wasn't sure what I wanted to do, was in my Atlanta kitchen watching the Oprah Winfrey show, and she had a show about attributes, self-attributes, you know, like what's it like to be you uniquely walking through life. Mm-hmm. And Carrie Davis was a 17-year-old black girl at the time who who reconducted the doll test on her show through a documentary, seven-minute documentary called A Girl Like Me. And in that documentary, she reconducted the doll test. And in my kitchen, I just was like, how is it in this day and age black kids are still choosing a doll that doesn't look like them as the better doll? Like, what's wrong with us? Yeah. And I fell apart and I cried about it. And in that moment, I realized that I was the black doll. I I realized that I could walk into a modeling agency and be pretty as the next model, but not be chosen. I realized that I was born to Hal and Edna in in the party of four dark girls that were rejected and and talked about by adults. Mm -hmm. I realized why I ate lunch in the bathroom and, and learn human nature. And I realized how I could hang on the busiest street in the world where Clear Channel told me more than a million people a day would pass me and be ignored. I was the black doll. So I sat down at my kitchen table and created the black doll affair. And here we are. 16 years later? 17. 17 years later. Is that crazy? Yeah. It's so cool. Yeah. I And... A little backstory, you and I met because you walked into our store one day and you were inviting us to a meeting about, I think with the, the chief of police or yeah. something. It was yeah. when things were, were TBC. kind of a... Uh, Odd mess. Yeah, a little <laughs> bit of a disaster in Tacoma. Um, and there was just, you, you just had this energy that I was immediately drawn to. And like we were talking about before, I, I knew that I I wanted to know you, right? And I think... I've always said this, and I believe wholly in the fact that you are the sum of the five people that you spend the most time with. I agree. Um, and so <clears throat> I really try to make sure that the people that are in my life, the people I surround my with myself with, are people that I aspire to be like in some way, right? It doesn't have to be everything about them. We all have our flaws, but I want to aspire to be like the people around me. Yeah. Um, and so one of the big things about you is your confidence and your self-assuredness. And it's funny talking to you about our childhoods being similar and being bullied and all of that and kind of feeling alone and eating lunch in the bathroom and whatever else, because you look at you now and you are, to me, the epitome of a strong woman, confident, just incredibly gorgeous. I, I just... I tell the story all over and over again when you held your black doll um, or the, the um, what was it called? The black and white doll party. The black and white doll party at, your, at, at our store. Yeah. And you and Valicia walked in and I, it took my breath away. I had never had a moment like that where wow. I, I happened to look at the door in the moment that the two of you walked in and I went, oh, because you were so beautiful and the whole energy in the room changed. Aww. Um, and so that, you know, for me, this podcast, I'm still figuring out exactly what it is, but part it's a of talk show. it is it's kind this. of is, yeah, it's true. <laughs> but for me, part of, you know, the whole monarch thing is that metamorphosis. And for me, the last two years, I've really been focusing on finding myself again and figuring out who I am, where I fit in. 
becoming more confident because I, I didn't have that through, you know, up until two years ago, really. I mean, still not the most confident person, but I'm getting there. So to meet somebody with all these life experiences who came out on the other end, a total badass, right. Um, is so inspiring to me because I look at that and I go, I, I be like that. Um, so I just, you know, I always say, thank you for saying that. And, and I can honestly say when I walked into your store, first of all, and then I said this to you the night of our whiskey party at your place, it was like arriving home at my grandmother's place, you know, with the black walls and the chandeliers. And, yeah. But, but now to learn that you and I both have such similar childhood stories, which I always say nothing's a coincidence, but, but stunning, stunning. I thought the same thing about you, particularly stunning, like you're stunning New York, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought like, what's she doing in Tacoma? Right. But, but, but it's so like I, the Barbie movie, it's, <laughs> Ken is beach. <laughs> <laughs> I'm New York. <laughs> like seriously, like, like, like that is it. And so I'm always fascinated when I find, you know, <clears throat> a plum in the punch bowl. Like, like, how did this plum get here? Right. And, and Valicia will tell you, I was like, I just walked into the most amazing boutique, mm-hmm. the most stunning couple. Like you guys, you guys just, the, everybody has a story. And I do believe, and I haven't decided at 52, which comes first, fate or destiny. But one thing I do know for sure, and I feel like you know this as well, and I know that you get the same reaction that I get because you're not just the average Joe, Anna, right? Which is so funny because I don't feel that way. Well, because, (laughs) and here's why you don't, because you ate lunch in the girl's bathroom. Yeah, that's true. And so you and I have spent so much time as society's, I don't know, for me, I was, I was society's ugly. I, I literally fit the bill of quote unquote ugly. So I heard that from the time I was born so that when I grew in society's swan, beautiful swan, it didn't mean anything to me. Yeah. Right. It was who I, it's it's what I was, but it wasn't who I was. And so I always feel like the time, and this is why I always say to girls when I talk to them, whatever you're going through, you're supposed to. Yeah. And you're going to lead that group of people in life. So make your mess your message. Yeah. And I, I today I am I am a badass when it comes to my self-esteem. And Valicia always says, like, Dana doesn't let anybody put her bowl on the floor. Yeah. Meaning you're not going to treat me like a dog. Right. I'm a doll. I'm not a dog. Um, but I've gotten that way because I understand human nature. I've been kicked by society. And by the time society wanted to make me the pretty popular girl, because I saw in the bathroom what the pretty popular girl was like, no, thank you. Yeah. And so I've really paved a way for me at that 52. I like me. But. I like you too. Thank you. But here's the thing about self-esteem. And you and you should know this at 28? 29 now. 29. Last oh. year. Before I hit 30. <laughs> before you hit 30. <laughs> oh, my God. Um. So here's, here's what I want you to know at, at, at 29 before you hit 30. 
self-esteem is like being having quote unquote high self-esteem is like being a recovering alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Right. You grow into your self-esteem and I don't care what your childhood is, no matter what your childhood is. Society has a way of kicking you in the ass, period. Yeah. And 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 we as adults, we want to stand out. Kids want to fit in. Yep. And so because of that, childhood is tumultuous and you go through this. I want to fit in. I'm not good enough, period. But what you come to realize and what I've come to realize is that self-esteem is like a recovering addict. You might slip up one day. Yeah. Because that's what did psychiatrists say, that we are who we are by the age of seven. That's our thumbprint. Right. And so I could, I could, I, I, I'm not perfect. And I, I have challenges in terms of like, you know, self-esteem, but I am I am a badass that's on the 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 journey of I like me. Yeah. Well, and I think once you've arrived at I like me, it's so much easier when you have those slip-ups to bring yourself back to 100%. I like me. 100%. Because I've been doing that work and through now a divorce and all of the things I'm having to really look at myself and if I'm not okay with myself there is no one else there. Like I just have to be good with myself and what I'm doing. And exactly when I do have these instances, because it's crazy, right? Those mean girls and popular girls still exist now. Yeah. Right. I, I just went through a whole experience. It was part of what started this last year and a half. I just went through an experience in uh, the neighborhood I lived in previously before I moved out to my farm where you have all of these women that are like the group, right? And any (laughs) chance they get, they choose to be mean and they will not choose to stand up for the underdog or the one that's being What is that? Because they want to fit in. Because even the popular girls want to fit in. But But going through it now, it's so much easier for me. I have those moments and, you know, they could be mean or my ex-husband could say something to me that's mean. And it brings me back to this place, my seven-year-old self or my younger self that's sitting in that bathroom. But now at 29 years old, having done the work, I get back to the place of, nope, I still love me. I can still look in the mirror. And I think a part of that is that strength of character. Mm -hmm. That while we're sitting in the bathroom, yep. we're, we can't rely on the looks because however I look now, however, however anyone thinks that I look now, I definitely am more attractive than how I was as a kid. I had a tiny face with giant features. I was all lips. I mean, even now, my mouth is half the size of my Gorgeous head. I mean, mouth. more than half, you know, giant okay, let's eyeballs. Just stop. Let's just stop. <laughs> Your lips, mouth. People are are literally in recline, millions around now. the country getting injections. I know injection. that now. You know that now. Right. All natural. Right. And I know right. that now. But as right. a kid. You don't know that. You yeah. have a tiny face. You have giant eyebrows, giant eyeballs, giant lips. More features than fit on your face. Yeah. I had super thick eyebrows, which, by the way, is all the rage now. But oh, when fabulous. I was growing up, 
was like, no, you had to have like one hair thin eyebrows, you know, and mine pretty much almost met in the middle. I had glasses and I was way too skinny and like couldn't put on any weight. Right. So I'm like awkward and lanky and whatever. Right. I was not attractive. I would walk to, I still remember the kid's name and I'm going to not say it in case this podcast. Say it. Mine is Shelly Mitchell. All right. Alex Krinsky (laughs) is walking down the hallway. Isn't that funny that we remember their first and last name? Oh, yeah, because it's so painful. Uh, yeah. I was walking down the hallway carrying a huge pile of books for my skinny, tiny little body. And he just came by me and he whacked his hand down uh, on the books and they went all over the hallway. Uh, humiliating. And so embarrassing. So I'm on the floor scrambling, right? And it's like period change, right? So uh, everybody's, everybody's in the hallway and I'm yeah. scrambling to try and pick up all my books. And I have tears running down my face and nobody's helping me. Nobody. Right? Uh, but so... You grow in those moments. I can't rely on pretty. I can't be the cute one. I wasn't the one that boys were interested in in school, but I was the kind one. Yeah, I was the reliable one. I always showed up. Good old Maxine. Everybody. Yeah. Yep. So I spent the time that other people worry about their looks and fitting in on building my character and like yeah. I'm going to be a good person. Yeah. And I may not like exactly what I see in the mirror, but I look at my soul yeah, and I and like you're it. happy with that. That's the thing. My sister, um, I love that. And you have kids, so I'm sure you instill this as, in, as well. Christy, um, my baby sister, she is so, because she has the same journey of <clears throat> being teased. I mean, she was a little different because, I mean, everybody, she was born literally a doll. But then awkwardness into the teenage years. And mm-hmm. she instills in her daughter all the time. You know, she'll pull up to the schoolyard. And if there is someone who's in a wheelchair mm-hmm. um, or has special needs, she'll say Chloe. Who Chloe is just the opposite of who we were as kids. She's this stunning little girl that everybody double takes. Right? Yes. And she'll say, I've seen the videos, right? I mean, you sent the videos yeah. of her. She's she's stunning. Beautiful. And she's been that, thank you. She's been that way since since she was a little girl. Like just out of the womb stunning. Mm-hmm. But Christy always says to her, Hey, that kid over there, mm-hmm. you're gonna be their friend. Mm-hmm. You're gonna protect them. Mm-hmm. You're gonna make sure that nobody does anything mean to them. And if you do see something, then you say something. Yeah. We have to teach our kids heart because that's what was missing yeah. in our childhood. But Maybe good because that's what we learn. I always yeah. say there's a reason for the heart and the Black Dollar Fair logo. Yeah. It's love. Yeah. I do. It's funny that you bring that up because I've never consciously had this thought, but I do. That is the baseline of everything I teach my boys. And because I have all boys, I think it's even more important to me. Like they need to notice things. They need to stand up for others. They need to be good humans. I don't, I don't want to raise men that will eventually be husbands that don't notice when their wife is down or needs something. So I do teach my boys. I instill in them to notice things. And it's funny because their teachers will write me and they'll tell me funny stories about ways in which they're actually they're so living kind. that. Yeah. And it makes me so proud because I don't care if the teacher writes me and says, hey, your kid's a little behind in math or whatever. If the teacher writes me and tells me that my child is kind, that's all there. And that's, that's all I need. It's all I've done about. my job. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that's taught. Yeah. As much as hatred is taught, as much as bullying is taught, 
love is taught, kindness is taught. Yes. And and you either have that lesson in your home or you don't. Right. And you either become that what was his name? Who who put who hit my books? Yeah. Alex. Uh, Alex. What was his last Krins- name? Krinsky. Let's Alex say Krinsky. his name. Say oh, his no. name. <laughs> Whatever, Alex Krinsky. <laughs> I will remember that to my dying day. Yeah. And so and so it is what it is, right? And hopefully that's why I say Shelly Mitchell. And everybody who knows me, my family, oh, Shelly Mitchell. Mm-hmm. Because you have to know what impact you make on people's lives. Yeah. And so, I mean, there's listen, Alex is who knows where he is to this day. But if he hears it, if Shelly hears it, maybe they didn't even know. That's the thing. And this is something that I am also through the work I'm doing on myself realizing most of the time they're just trying to get, get through their own life as well. Exactly. Exactly. And maybe that was funny to him, right? And and we were young. I mean, we must have been middle school, maybe sixth grade. So I don't think kids, most kids that age, ever really stop and go outside of themselves to look at how somebody else could be feeling or how that could impact the person that they're doing. I it think to. they're they worried do. about themselves. I think I, I I think they do. You do. I think it's a shield. It's a protective armor from the work that I've done with the Black Doll Affair. And from studying the popular girls with her crew that comes in, they're just broken. And if you're, first of all, you, you've, you've given birth. Yep. Babies are born. They're just joy. Yep. They are pure love. And so kindness is something that is taught and I also believe is an innate. I don't, I've never seen a hateful baby newborn. No. Right? And so... Something is going on at home that a child feels necessary, the need to come and bully or be mean to somebody else. Even if it's not overt, I totally Totally. agree. And it starts from the moment they are born. Of course. Right? Like, is my parent attending to my cries? Exactly. How am I being nurtured? That's the purest form of where they're learning how they're interacting with their society. And, and I do, I think I've learned that everybody is just doing the best with what they have. Yeah. So yeah. whatever, Alex or <laughs> Shelly, <laughs> you know, they they were doing the best with what they had in that moment. And so much of it I'm learning is self-preservation. It is. Even it's, if it's, it's at the expense of someone else. You know what movie got that right? Breakfast Club. Did you ever see The Breakfast nope. Club? I'm not a movie person. Oh, my God. I there's know. so many. There's so, there's so many references. <laughs> I almost like, list, I'm Dana. Like, I know, right? <laughs> oh, St. Elmo's Fire we <laughs> talked about. Um, the Breakfast Club. You have got to watch The Breakfast okay. Club. I just think you need to write me. I'll give you 52 movies. <laughs> and by the time I'm 52, I will you have watched your them. list. Well, these are iconic Movies and The Breakfast Club is an 80s movie with the Brat Pack, which you probably don't remember. I'm showing my age difference from you, <laughs> but um, it just it just it places the cheerleader, the the rogue, the the dopehead, the athlete, the, the crazy girl. They're all placed in detention on a Saturday and it became one of the biggest blockbuster movies of the 80s. But it really the, the, I think the reason it became so famous is that it dwells into what's going on at home. Yeah. And it and as much as they're relating to each other as the 
athlete, the cheerleader, the popular girl, the the rich girl, the, mm-hmm. all the stuff, then they kind of pan into, you know, like, you know, what's going on at home. And I just think that that's hurt people hurt people. Mm-hmm. Right. And I always try and it's not easy because especially the older we get, you do become more accepting, but you also have zero to give like yeah. you, that. You just really stop giving a shit. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's my balance now is like a cop between like who cares and you got to care. Right. And so uh, I think that's the balance of of just, you know, how where you are in terms of care about the people that need caring for. And I always try to see the four year old Maxine. Mm-hmm the five-year-old Maxine, the seven-year-old Dana, the eight-year-old, knowing that babies are innocent and what happened to them. Most bad people, there's usually a backstory of home life. Yeah. I have not walked a mile in your shoes. And I do, as I get older, I start to realize everybody does have that backstory. And I try to teach my kids too, like, especially with road rage, right? That's like the most rage they see really. I'm like, that person had a bad day. Right. And so I don't have to let it affect me, but I can let them merge. Right. Or, you know, I can do my in my own little ways, things that don't affect me that I don't really have to go out of my way for to just let them have an easier day because I don't know what's going on behind. And through that small acts of love. Right. Those aren't overt acts of love, but those little like I'm just going to let you you know, have this or you, you know, you need this, go ahead, whatever it is. Um, you, you do kind of start to show people love a little bit. You do, you do. Um, because you're, because your heart's maturing. Yes. And it, and it no longer, it no longer matters. I think the younger you get, you're keeping score and the older you get, the less score you keep. This is what I love about aging. And I, I, whoever came up with the phrase youth is wasted on the young, mm-hmm. you know, like why an, a 13 year old girl can have a baby, but a 50 year old woman can't. Yes. God's got some explaining to do. Yeah. <laughs> like, come on. Are you, well, this I, is your babysitter. <laughs> I love your sentiment on marriage, too. Oh, which one? <laughs> the one about what did you say? You shouldn't get married before the age of 50 or something oh, like yeah, that. Totally. Totally. Like, it should not happen. Like, shouldn't. you don't know enough. I mean, and I fully believe that. I really do because, okay, so just to fill everybody in that theory. So so I believe that from zero to 18, you are your parents. Mm-hmm. And that is you are, you are doing and operating in their religion, in their biasness, in their prejudiceness, and everything they want to put on you, mm-hmm. right? That's their responsibility as parents. They're yeah. rearing you. Yeah. And then from 18, uh, let's say zero to 20. So from 21 to 30, 20 to 30, you are, you've left your parents' home and you're like, I'm out of there. And you are just free to do and be and try and test what's that button for mm-hmm. right to do all the things that your parents would just you know they're over there clinching their pearls over yeah. hoping that you won't try hoping that you won't do but that is the time that you should do it and and yet society says 
get married in your 20s. Yeah. And it's like, what the hell? Yeah. Why? Well, because I got married. I got married at 19 years old. Ugh. But by by German standards, way young. I mean, my family was freaking out. My uncle, who never talks to me, took me to lunch and said, don't, don't get married. Do it. Don't do it. What they didn't know is they didn't know what my life had looked like at home because my family, my extended family, zero percent involved, like doesn't care, you know, whatever. They they felt like this was a good opportunity for them to like put their two cents in. (laughs) But I was like, I got to I got to do the thing that I want to do. I don't want to live by my mom's rules anymore. I don't want to live, you know, under that thumb. And my mom is an amazing woman. She had her own struggles. Right. And I needed to get out. I needed to go do my own thing. Um. But I, I got married super young by German standards. I mean, Germans generally do not get married until their 30s, yeah. right? And they have yeah. kids later and they have like one, maybe two. It's yeah. very conservative. But in We're the US- We're starting to do that now, though. That's true. It's starting, starting to happen to now. But in the US, there's very much this narrative like you go to college, and you find yourself a husband. Period. Period. Point that's, blank. That's, like, that's, that is, that is that's your trajectory. And it's so stupid and no one ever tests that. And I'm just like- I mean, my mom wanted me to go to college. I didn't go to college until late in yeah. life. But I was I was failing miserably in high school, like 1.8 average. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not very good. I don't know if you're familiar <laughs> with the school system ratings here, but that's that's a failure. Yeah. But 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 I was, you know, and she was like, "Oh, you got to go to college." I'm like, "Lady, have you <laughs> What, you don't know me? You Have you seen and... the writing on the wall? Right? Like literally. <laughs> that's an F up there on the wall. So I'm like, I'm like, save the money. I want to just go out and live. Mm-hmm. So I was wise enough to do that because girls' bathroom. I, yeah. I was more mature. And I was like, I'm not going to college in my 20s. I didn't go until late. And then when I went, I excelled. Yeah. But so zero to 20, you're with your parents. 20 to 30, you're trying it all. And mm-hmm. you should. Yep. Try it all. Yep. 30 to 40, you're, it's a mix. Mm-hmm. That's your mixtape, right? A little bit of mama Nim, a little bit of you. Yeah. Right? And you're and you're you're like you're like a chef in the recipe. You're going, like fi- figuring out the balance. You're figuring out you're the just, balance. Yes, absolutely. Totally. It's like a, a push and a pull every and it's day. Good. Like, yep. And it's good. And 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 like in my 30s, I was in sex clubs and I was like, I was and my mom was just like, what? Dana. Was, <laughs> we can talk about that. We can talk about it. I was. Hal and Edna, what is going <laughs> on? My mom was mortified. And but 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 I was like, OK, I, I know what the Black Baptist Christian Bible study every day, zero to 20 meant. Now I want to go out and be Dana. And yeah. as a as an adult. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't that wild in my 20s. I really wasn't, except I was free because mm-hmm. I like that part about me. I was the same, but your free and my free were different. My free was like, I'm going to create a family yeah. that is exactly the family I, I want because I'm a homebody. So I was me like, too. you know, I'm, I'm just going to create exactly what I want. And that's why I'm, you know, getting married and I'm having my kids and I'm going to be so happy. Right. Yep. But I didn't do the exploratory. Yeah. 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 So I, I did the exploratory and 20 to 30, I explored it. And then in my late 20s, I decided to go to college. And then my 30s, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm kind of unique. Mm-hmm. You know, I've done some things. And so I did it. That was the time to explore my sexuality. Mm-hmm. And I had a friend who was a, who owned a valet company and a sex club. And we can talk about that because that's not my point. <laughs> but, I, but I don't mind talking about it. But so then 
like 30 to 40, it's the mixtape. Mm-hmm. And you're the chef in there going, okay, let's put a little bit of Auntie Jean mm-hmm. and a little Uncle Henry and a little less daddy. Because, you yeah. know, like, you know, it's like, so you're making your mix. And then 40 to 50, ugh, it's Dance Party USA. Okay. Like, it is like, okay, the recipe's out the oven. I'm mm-hmm. kind of digging it. I like it. Tastes good. Everybody's happy with it. And then you're living that recipe to 40 to 50. And 40 to 50 really was good because still had my body. Still was like, you know, I was accomplishing things and like it was good. And mm-hmm. I wasn't young and I wasn't old. Mm-hmm. And so that's and my and and, you know, whoever these women are. And, you know, I don't discount anybody's experience. But f- sex life in the 40s. Great. Oh, great. Good. Something to look forward like, to. Eleven like, years. Uh, because not that it's not great now, but you know. <laughs> but I'm telling you, like people think, you know, the older you get, the no, great because you're not you're you you know what you want, mm-hmm. you know what you don't want, and so it's just you're that probably not afraid to ask for it either. You're not afraid to ask for it, and that is what forty to fifty is. And you're in your career and you're doing your thing. 50, I haven't gotten to 60, but what I can say about 50 is that the biggest thing I can say about being 52 is I am certainly my own woman. Mm-hmm. And I think if there was one phrase is I don't give a shit. Mm-hmm. Like that is that is a true thing for me. Where I'm going with this, like, because now I'm looking at legacy, I don't know yet. Yeah. I don't Could know yet. Could be a Dana Hill wedding? In our future? God, it scares the hell out of me. <laughs> Nobody's saying you have to. I will never get married again. See? I mean, okay. I'll Why? never say never. Um, I truly think that the only reason to get married is if you're going to have kids with that person. Yeah, I agree. Um, You know, it's really important to me that I have the same last name as my kids. Just alone for travel and school and whatever. But I I want to feel part That's of that, that with family. my kids. Yeah. yeah. Um. But I, I don't, like, for what? And it, now it, your boys are going to give the, it's got the legacy. Yeah. You don't have to do that The anymore. piece of it. paper to me complicates things. In my own experience, that piece of paper just kind of, like, things were set to default. Not on my end, but from my partner's end. And we are still great friends. We get along super well. He understands that now. A lot of things that happen in a marriage. But... Yeah, I I don't think I don't th- it would not be my goal to get married. I don't know if it would I I could see myself doing a ceremony, like a commitment ceremony, because to me it's a spiritual thing to kind of commit to intertwining your soul with another person for however long. But ultimately, I I don't know that I believe in marriage anymore. I think that you should choose every day to live your life alongside somebody, not to tether yourself and and Feel like, well, I, I'm not going to leave because I have this piece of paper yeah. and I've like proclaimed to the world it's that part. Yeah, so I don't know. I, I don't. That's not something I I think I want to do again. So the, that last part is what marriage is not for me. I've I've always said to my mom, even when I was younger, I'm not going to get married, mm-hmm. and she would say, "You can't say that. You're too you're too young to say that." I'm like, yeah, well, I've kind of looked around and I don't see anybody making it work. <laughs> and the ones that are staying together aren't very happy. Yeah. So because I observe. Yeah. And so even as a young soul, I just was like, why the hell would I get married? Like, 
yeah, Granny and Grandpa have been together since they were 12, but they are in separate bedrooms and mm-hmm. there's not this. And and loving grandparents. I don't want to discount the... the well, there's nothing wrong with Clotie that. Clotie and, and that Levi. that works for them. Well, it was... But, the, you know, my grandfather was born in 1919. Mm-hmm. And so marriage was, you know, it's what you did. But I... they So they were the epitome of the long-lasting. But yet I'd look at my grandmother and be like, you know, that's a, that door swings open and close. Like, lady... <laughs> Make that work for you, right? <laughs> like my grandfather was such a hellraiser. I love him, but like I would have left him, and she never did. Well, and that was just not that's acceptable. not what you did. It's not what you did. Yeah, but that's what I observed. And yes. so then with my parents, I just didn't see marriage. And so I then I, once I made that proclamation, I said, "Oh yeah, and I'm not having babies." <gasps> you can't have yeah. babies. What do you mean you're not gonna have babies? And I'm just like, I don't think I want this life that you people are presenting. Yeah. Like, I just didn't. And so that's always been the unique me. Marriage for me, I believe in love. I Mm -hmm. am a lover. And there's not anybody who's ever made love to me that wouldn't say, wouldn't agree. Like, I'm a, like, I'm a lover. Yeah. I believe in love. And I hate the rules and policies that yeah. life puts on that no not life because life doesn't put rules and policies society. on love society yeah life says here's somebody to love and then society says oh no no they're black they're this they're short they're i believe in love here's the problem with marriage for me one i've never seen one happy after a while yeah and that's you know to me why not just love someone and for as long as you want to love them and they want to love you, go into the world with that. Yeah. But the stay beyond the love mm-hmm. because you said you would, mm-hmm. you're damaging kids who yeah. are like, you know, we'll be okay if you guys separate because kids are resilient and we're both products of it. Yep. You, you, we survive. Yep. Um, and so my theory on marriage is... And if you have, once you go through all those stages of advancements, for me, I'm still, I'm, I don't want to get married now. Yeah. I don't want to get married now. I wouldn't want to marry someone younger than me because someone younger than me probably has a you, right? An ex-wife that's still very much involved in their lives and still raising the babies. Mm -hmm. And I don't want that. And that's nothing to discount. That's no shade on you. We all have our lives. But oh. I'm just saying, I don't want that for me. It's not for you. It's, and that's okay. Yeah. That's, that's okay. All. That's you it. You can just go, it's not for me. It's not for me. Now, I want, I, so so fast forward your age and meeting someone who has three boys that are in college or getting ready to marry, then that that's where I want my guy. Yeah. But 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 raising kids and still with a wife and then a girlfriend that he's trying to date. No, yeah. thank you. <clears throat> and so and I think that's important for a man to be there for you. I think it's important to be there for his wife, ex or otherwise, mm-hmm. and his kids. Yeah. Without the unfair interference of like, oh, I'm dating. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, no, you should probably be with your family, even if it's separate. Yeah. Right. So and so. I think a man, by the time he arrives in his 50s, where his boys are grown and his girls are 
married Mm -hmm. and his ex-wife has a new husband and the mortgage is like, yeah, you know, let's just go, let's get a boat and sail to Europe. Yeah. I want that. I want that. I don't want, because here's the other thing. Look at you. Beautiful, stunning, and you're starting a new podcast, which means when this podcast takes off, you're going to have this to mold. Yeah. And to take places. And so I don't want a man that's in that's molding his career and trying to figure out where it's going. I want a man once he's retired <laughs> and he's like, seriously. Yeah, that sounds great. That. Yeah. And we can go travel. And he picks up the phone and calls his ex-wife and says, hey, yeah, you know, the boys are flying up with their wives. Yeah. I want that. And so for me, I was engaged to a wonderful man in his uh, late 40s. And there was nothing like coming downstairs and seeing him on a Friday night with his glasses on because he needed them to read. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like, seriously, so comfortable sitting on our sofa on a Friday night at 8 o'clock and no place else he wanted to be. Didn't feel like he needed to be out with the boys. Didn't feel like he was missing out in the club. Had had all the women he wanted to play with. Was there in that space because life. Yeah. And I don't, so I don't want a young man that, that I, I think it would be a disservice. There's something to be said about being in the same kind of space in your life, right? It doesn't work if one person is, you know, unattached and wants to go gallivanting around the world. And the other person is like, nope, I'm like anchored here and I'm, you know, knee deep in job, kids, yeah, whatever. Um, I, I question, and I think you know this, like I question whether or not I'm going to find anybody um, really until my kids are, are 18 because I'm a strong, independent woman. I don't need anyone in my life and I really enjoy, I mean, I have my kids energy in my space, but I really enjoy nobody else's energy in my space. I really just love that I can create that for myself as a homebody. I don't have to contend with anyone else's feelings or how their moods or whatever. So I question, will I find that until my kids are grown? And I love love. Sex is awesome. All the things I just question if in the way that I need it have learned arrive. and need it to arrive, if that's going to happen while I have young kids at home. And that's where I'm so excited leaning into female friendships where those women, I mean, I already have people in my life that I know are going to be in my life for the rest of my life. My best friend, Brittany, she and I, we will be racing down the hallways of <laughs> the old people home walkers. together. You know, like it's just eat our dust. We're going to do it. Um, and, and I mean, you don't know, right? Even if you are married, you, you're not going to die at the same time as that person. So yeah. ultimately, if you have those female friendships fulfilling you and and serving that emotional connection purpose, I'm not saying you don't need a man because obviously that's great and love is on a different level, but I'm excited right now at this point in my life to be leaning into female friendships and the people that likely will accompany me for a long time, if not the rest of my life. And it's not that you don't need a man. I mean, like technically you don't need a man. A man doesn't need a woman. Right. It's a desire to have someone in your life. Absolutely. And that desire is there. 
I just have learned to be really picky. Yeah. Right. I'm yeah. not going to just let anyone into this space, space of, of mine. Yeah. And in the work I am doing on myself and building my own confidence, I'm, it. I'm kind of like, you know what? I'm actually pretty cool. Yeah. And I like the things that I'm doing. Yeah. And if you don't, then go away. You know why? Because you're approaching the 30, 40 stage. Yeah. <laughs> That's I'm, it. I am excited. I'm so excited. Yeah. You know, it's like I'm, I feel good where I'm at and I'm, I'm finally like, this is me. Take it or leave it. And yeah, I do have those moments where we go kind of back like oh you know that hurt my feelings that made me sad that put me back to that girl in the bathroom yeah. like with these housewives or you know situations like that are going to keep happening because yeah. like you said I mean people really are like kids and adult bodies they are. so they are. that's why they don't stop doing stuff like that unless they fundamentally start to try and heal themselves yeah. and make a conscious effort not to do it I'm shocked at how many people don't do that though are you I mean I am now because I got to the point where I ended up doing the work. But and I think I I've, I've done the work earlier than a lot of people, but I did a lot of things in my life earlier than a lot of people. Yeah. Um it is it is like the biggest thing that I say to anybody I meet now is like go to therapy. therapy. Do it. Like therapy. everybody should have a therapist. Everybody. I'm surprised that it's not you could do it in school like there should be a therapist's office, right? Well, but but there is, but it's almost frowned upon. My school had my schools all had like a in Germany. It was a counselor. No, I had some schools in the US, oh, but no. it was it was like a school counselor. Yeah. So yeah, I guess there should be a therapist or there should be I'm talking like a real like, hey, can I lay down today? Yeah. <laughs> just want to sit on the couch. I need to recline and tell you what had happened was. Well, it almost should be prescribed by a doctor at a certain point is like, hey, you've reached the age of 12 or whatever it is. You're you're battling with who you are and, you know, being your own person, still under your parents' wing. You need to go through mandatory whatever it is. And even if you just sit in the therapist's office and stare at them, like you... You just should have you to do should. it. You just it's should. It's so good. Imagine if every school had a curriculum where you literally had therapy. And 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 even as you just said, even if you go there and it's like, I, I mean, I don't even know why I'm here. I'm kind of good. That's fine. Yeah. But if we just taught boys and girls to talk, mm -hmm. where you've just got one hour to sit with somebody else going, so what's going on in your life? And not allow the surface level stuff. So- Anybody that knows me knows that I cannot stand small talk. It's why I don't do well in those housewife groups where everybody stands around you and talks about so the weather and like, <laughs> you know what? I just like, oh, and your kid's doing this uh, and Becky from next door did this stupid <laughs> thing and whatever. Like, it's just not who I am. Yeah, I'm like, you're deeper than that. Get in there fast and furious. I'm like, you tell me what's actually happening. Yeah. I want to know you. I want to know I can build you up. I want to know how I can wrap my arms around you. I want to know what you truly think about things. And I want to have deep discussions. I don't want to sit there and chat about the bullshit of what's going on next door and, and whatever else bored, uninspired thing you have going on in your brain. I want to know the deep stuff. Yeah. Like, don't waste my time. Let's no. get to it. Oh, Let's get to it. I know yeah. I'm the same way. I am the same way, which is why I always have to try to like reel myself back because I love talking and then I like, I like to like, like my favorite phrase is like, what's her story? Yeah. What's your story? You know, and, and I'm, I'm really just like, I really just want to know like who you are, where you came from. Like, I don't, I don't care about this little stuff we're talking about over the cheese. Yeah. I don't. No. 
you you could uh, in German you say du kannst mich damit jagen, which means like you could chase me with that. Like uh, I do not want it please. near me. Yeah, yeah, I can't, I can't do it. It's not. But fine. I think that I think that for me for therapy, I don't know when you started. I st- Brief stint when I was younger when my parents were getting divorced, but it was a horrible therapist. She essentially told told me it was my fault. Oh uh, my yeah, god! Yeah, worst therapist ever. Oh, my God. Um, oh, yeah. How my, old were you? Oh, my God. I, so my parents divorced took years. So they started when I was in sixth grade, and they were done when I was in heading into 10th grade. It was awful, millions of dollars. Like just, So in sixth grade, you had a, a therapist say, you know, if you had just been better. Essentially. I mean, yeah, it was like, well, you know, yeah, it was it was not good. And there was so much of my parents' divorce that happened that was absurd. Um that's like a whole nother, we could talk for 10 hours on that. But um, I found therapy again as an adult as I was starting to question my marriage and just kind of looking around going, really, is this it? I'm like, this is, I, I just, I, I, I love my ex-husband as a person, but I was like, I'm not in love anymore. And am I really going to stick around and do this because I signed a piece of paper and I told everybody I was going to do it? Like, no. And and so therapy helped me find that. How brave. Do you know how many people, married people particularly, live their lives in quiet desperation? Oh, it's almost everybody. I know. That's I why say I don't now he and I have a better friendship and and c- communication and all the things now. Than most married people do, yeah. which is sad. Yeah. I mean, that is And because just, now you're relating on a human level. You don't have to be this thing. There's no pressure. There's no pressure. There's no pressure, no expectation. Yep. Yeah. And, and that's not to say shit doesn't happen because it does. But human. it Yeah. It's you just, can show up as as Maxine. Yeah. And he can show up as as who he is. There's not this piece of paper that we sign and we have to just be the robotic. Thing that yep. society says we promise to do. And every time we tried, because we tried to get back together a couple times, and every time it was like, it's no, over. it just, it that pressure, it just, it wasn't for us, but we're friends and we're business partners. And who knows if it'll always be like that. But the one thing is that we respect our children and we put them first. That's it. And as long as we both keep them at the center of our minds and every decision that we make, they're going to be okay. Yeah. Kids only need for you to be okay. They just need for the bus drivers to drive the bus. Yeah. Right? Don't fuss about it. Don't, don't, y'all just get up there and drive the bus. We'll be fine. Kids are a lot more resilient than we give them. And so many people stay together for the kids. And it's like, yeah, you know, the kids would be better off if you separated. That's, it's something my therapist, I said, I was like, I, I don't want to give my kids what I had. Yeah. I don't want to break their home. And I, do you think that's I why you stayed want, for so long? Oh, absolutely. And, and a huge part of it was all my family members that don't actually care about me, right? The extended family, aunts and uncles and whatever that never cared. They just cared to have an opinion. I didn't want to prove them right. Mm. And so I was like, no, I'm going to make this work. I'm going to make it work. And I realized eventually, you know what? And this is the, I just don't give a fuck. You don't give a fuck anymore. I don't give a fuck. I don't care what you think because you're in a miserable marriage. And I know that. Bad part. And so I'm not going to stay and make the same mistake you're making just because you have the judgment of me. Isn't that interesting that society has the temerity to be so super judgmental 
mm-hmm. in such a miserable disposition. Yeah. I mean, it's like true. seriously. But I think, but I think it's, that's all connected. Like when you are miserable, you feel the need to judge. Misery when loves company, you are as we happy, say here. Yeah. You don't feel the need to judge. I am, I am happier. I am stressed in a lot of ways, but I am happier in a lot of ways than I have been in a long time. And I feel the least judgmental now than I have in really a, a long time. I was taught by the people that I grew up around, the society I grew up in, like they all judged everybody, yeah. right? Like yeah. my family was housewives and and whatever. And they judged other people and and taught you to judge. They taught me to judge. And I now feel the least judgmental I've ever felt in my life. I, I fully embrace people for who they are. I accept the weird. I accept the awkward. I accept the the grumpy, rude, whatever. I don't have to let it in. Yeah, it is what it is. There's a violet and there's a rose. There's a carnation and there's a daisy. It is what it is. And I don't have to give an opinion on it. And you find your people mm-hmm. and and everybody else is kind of like, okay, like you be you, you do you. If, if that's what serves you, if that's what you need to do, go ahead. I'm going to just be me over here. I'll never forget. I was... Uh, again, you and I being on the same page, I went to therapy late 20s. And I just decided like, huh, I think I'm going to get a little therapy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> get a little therapy. Yeah. And, um, and not because I was so damaged, but because I was aware that I was, that I was, I mean, I was late 20s. So I was, I was caught between the what I, the zero to 20, what mm-hmm. I learned from home and who I was. And then as I was exploring who I was, I was starting to hear that who I was was weird and odd and like, what are you doing? And so I was like, well, maybe I am weird. Maybe well, as I you am find odd. yourself, other people have those judgments because maybe they haven't found themselves yet. So they feel they need to express it and put it on you. The church mm-hmm. or, you know, the church gallery. But yeah. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to find a therapist. So I went. And, and I say this to everybody, your therapist should be someone who just listens and then gives you their best advice, not their opinion. Mm-hmm. And so the first therapist I went to, she was Catholic. And I was like, you know, I'm going to sex clubs and I'm like, I'm seeing this. And then I tried this and I did that. And I'm like, what do you think? <gasps> oh, my God, it's such a sin. Mm. And you're going to burn in hell. And where did you- <laughs> No, I'm not kidding. Like, and where did you ever get this? But I was wise enough to be like, OK, you're not my therapist. Yeah. Like, I didn't say that to her. I'd just be like, OK, check her off the list. Yeah. Because I don't I didn't need I was enough of me that I didn't need another mother. I didn't need another opinion. I yeah. needed intellect. I needed for someone I needed to have this. Yes. I needed an intellectual conversation that wasn't rooted in Christianity. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, check her off the list. Nope. And then I'd go to another therapist and 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 who I was like, okay, I'm not going to, I want a therapist that's not necessarily religious. Mm-hmm. But then, so then I went to a person that was like, you know, I don't have any religious background. Come see me. But she was super opinionated. And I could just tell that she was like, you know, clenching her pearls, like, ooh, this child is a mess. And I was like, okay, not my therapist. And then one day I walked into my doctor's office in Fort Lauderdale and I just told him everything. And he just listened. And I looked up at him and I was like, I mean, you gonna say something, doc? And he's like, I'm I'm listening. And so I was like, oh, okay, well, this is new. Mm -hmm. And then I just kept going on and kept going on. And then he listened. 
And then the first session, he was like, all right, uh, when do you want to come back? And I'm like, <laughs> you kind of give some feedback here. He's like, I'm just getting to know you, Dana. Mm-hmm. And then the second time I came back, it was the same thing. And then finally, he would just chime in and say really cool things like, well, would you do that again? It's almost like putting you in conversation with yourself. It's 100% putting you in conversation. Right? They're asking it's those 100%. questions to have you turn around and ask yourself and and start that dialogue with yourself. It's yeah. It's a dialogue. That is what therapy is, Maxine. Dialogue with yourself. And you've got to find the therapist. You don't need mom and dad. You've got mom and dad. Mm-hmm. You don't need the pastor. You've got a pastor. You don't need the the church lady clenching her pearls. You need someone that's not judging you, that understands life mm-hmm. and the complexities and the unique individuals that come into it. And he would just say things like, okay, well, would you do it again? Well, how'd that work out? Well, what would you do differently? Yeah. And and I would ask, ask questions. And then one day, after I had told him everything and he had asked all the right questions, I literally, in a couch similar to the one you're on, a recline, I was like, I think I'm good. Like out of the blue. Mm-hmm. And he he started laughing. He's like, like right now you're good. And I was like, no, I really think I'm good. Mm-hmm. I just needed to have that conversation and to be taught how to have self-dialogue. And he mm-hmm. taught me that. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm, I think I will probably always have periods in my life where I will go back to therapy. And right now going through a divorce and going through all the things I'm going through now is a time when I need to be in therapy. I do see that at some point I'm going to stop going to therapy. It's and you'll know time when. consuming and whatever. I don't need to do it all the time. I'm an, a smart enough person and I have great people in my life that I can continue the dialogue with. But I think what it's also taught me, maybe not super consciously, but subconsciously, I now look for friendships where I can have real conversation but friendships also that challenge me to ask myself those questions, yeah. right? I don't need a yes your man. Your friendship circles become your therapy. Yes. But I don't need a yes man. Like, I don't need someone to sit there and go, yeah, you're right. You were absolutely right about that. Yeah. Like, I don't, I. No, thank you. No, I'm good. But I need you to say to me, did you think that was a good idea? Right. Really? And and my best friend and I are like that. Like, and I feel like you would call me out too, or I would call you out. I think it's important and it's valuable to have somebody that with love says, yeah. I love you unconditionally. You fucked up. Yeah. What are we doing about it? What are we going to do about it? That's right? it. But the, but the yes men, and that's what I find in those circles that Oof. I just can't stand, right? They're all yes men because they're still in that high school mindset of, needing I want to be in the group and I don't want to say anything that might be unpopular that might get me ousted and because I wasn't that person I was the one that got ousted because I'm like okay hold on yeah I see what's actually going on I'm gonna challenge you I'm gonna ask you the questions and I'm gonna call you out on your bullshit it I'm super blunt and anybody that works for me or is good friends with me will tell you that like I am blunt I will just say the thing there, there's nothing's attached to that. Like it's, there's not anger attached to it. There's not judgment. There's nothing. It's let's cut out the bullshit. Let's I just, just here's call what a it thing is. A thing. And it. let's figure let's it out. Why, then we'll move on. If we're if we're gonna sit here all day and call this table purple, yeah. Why bother? Right. Let's just let's cut out the timeout and just say, okay, this is a mahogany table. Can we go? Can we start from there? Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Just be real. Yeah. 
But again, it, it is, it's that work. It's, there's so much of it that's rooted in confidence that through the, the self-work comes the self-confidence, comes the no longer needing the approval, no longer being judgmental yourself. You kind of just live and let live. I feel like I'm a, a light person. I kind of always have been, but I'm, I'm even lighter now. I don't let anything weigh too heavy on me. I address every problem. I always say all problems are small problems. Like if I just tackle them one little thing at a time, even the biggest mountain, I'll get there. Right. And if I, I, in the hardest time of my life recently can be as positive as I am. And that's not to to say that I haven't struggled with, I do struggle with depression and all the things, but I'm able to pull myself out of it because I do feel good about myself and where I'm going. I know how to tackle problems. I'm I'm not ashamed to be who I am. There's a, okay, there's a couple things that I want to tell my younger self called Maxine. <laughs> no, seriously, at 52, is that, as, as, as I've said earlier, depression is just, that's just life. You know, that's just, I mean, we're, we're chemical beings. Mm-hmm. And so there's always going to be that. Um, but so so the one thing I would remind you is low self-esteem is like being an alcoholic. It always slips up. Mm-hmm. You could always fall off the wagon. There's that. And so you give yourself a little grace, right? I run a whole empowerment movement, and there are days where I have low self-esteem. Mm-hmm. It's my thumbprint, you know? It's, it's my childhood and the bullying and my story is – it's it's that's just where I came from. It yeah. just is what it is. I can be sourpuss about that or just say that's just a that's just an element of me. The other thing is, you know, you are on this trajectory of learning and growing and finding out who you are. And then you get to the point, and this is I, I really believe, you know, you can't have one without the other. There comes a point in time and just be ready for it where everything that you've learned and you know to be true and right and righteous and all that stuff, where life knocks on your door and turns all your furniture over, Mm -hmm. right? And then that becomes that wise time that I, where I'm at even in 50s and 60s, where you really have to deal with life on a different level Mm -hmm. beyond the 10s, 20s, 30s, 40s where it gets even more like, what the fuck? <laughs> right? Like, seriously. We're, and then I think that's how we get wiser. Mm-hmm. Is that? And I think that's how when you get in front of somebody that's 80, that's really intellectual, and they go beyond the stuff, and they rise above that where you become more of a soul, a spiritual being. Mm-hmm. And that's where I feel like that's where I'm at, where I, I, I feel like now... I'm more of a spiritual being mm-hmm. than I am a human being. Mm-hmm. And isn't that interesting because it's the cycle of life. Babies come here and they, they can't, they don't have any memory. They can't change their own diapers. They have, you can't talk. They can't walk. They need everything, mm-hmm. right? And, and our brains are sponges for this journey that we're going to go on. Mm-hmm. And then the older we get... I look at my mother. She's literally becoming a baby again. Mm-hmm. 
you know, where it's like you have to do, mom, what are you eating? You know, we're buying her diapers mm-hmm. and, and and we're her memory and and she's she wants to eat like a child again. It's like, what is what is going on that we come here and we're clean slates and then we go on this journey where we take on all of this intellectual information and knowledge. And then once we learn it, life takes it away from us. And so I feel like I'm on that journey now at 52 where I feel like now I'm becoming that spiritual being more than that human being because I've been on this human journey. Mm -hmm. And that becomes a whole new education because then you start relating to people and even the stuff that starts to happen to you really becomes a little bit um, otherworldly. Mm Mm-hmm. And so now, like, you know, whereas, you know, I used to listen to the hip hop and the all the things. And now it's like this morning I woke up and I'm listening to 432 Pure Tone Hertz. Are you familiar? No. Google it. <laughs> okay. Like, 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 and so you just, and you, it just, it's life is a trip. Yeah. And so, and, and, and I'm not one of those that gets up smoking weed every day. You yeah. know, like, that's not me. I like a bourbon. I do. Bourbon has its place. And. So I'm not, I'm not like, you know, someone that's like, oh, you know. Well, I do have one last question for you that I have kind of been curious about. And that is, what is the biggest thing that your own movement has taught you? Oh, God. (laughs) That's a great question. Like I should be a podcaster. <laughs> you should be a podcaster. That's a great question. Um, sadly, because I'm around so many women, mm-hmm. that I'm my own best friend. No. But but also, no, I take that back. Not all. Because that's how it should be. You that's should love is. yourself the most. That's how it is. I am my own. If this journey hasn't taught me anything, and again, it's I say sad because there's so many women, um, but it's been a journey of coming to the realization that the doll in the mirror started it all and she'll end it all. And... It really is all about me. As much as this movement has done for women and girls, it has been, I wouldn't be surprised if I got to the end of my life and God said, "This, you were the only one on the journey. You know, it's the, the Alice in Wonderland, the Wizard of Oz, the row, row your boat gently down the stream. I think it was for me. I was going to say, I, I could imagine, we, we do things that heal us. Yeah. Right. And all I know through all the things that I've done, all the businesses I've started and everything, there are certain things you do because whether you know it or not, that's going to heal you. Yeah. Goes along hand in hand with everything happens for a reason. 100%. Circling back to kind of full circle to the beginning of our conversation. Yeah. But yeah, maybe you were on the journey to heal yourself. And, and I think you probably have healed a lot of people on the way. And obviously you've left a legacy and, you're in textbooks and all of that, but yeah, maybe, maybe it ends with you because 
you healed you healed the girl that needed to be healed. I think that's it. And for me, it's the 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 environment in which I healed is called the Black Doll Affair. Mm-hmm. For somebody else, it's Exxon Oil Company, it's Jiffy Lube, it's Costco, it's a marriage, it's mm-hmm. it's a podcast, it's a you know. I think that I really do believe that our lives, and that's why I said I haven't decided which comes first, fate or destiny. Mm-hmm. I really haven't decided that, but I do believe that everybody you meet on your journey is a part of your story. Uh, I know you haven't watched this because <laughs> did you ever see Six Feet Under? No. You're catching on. I, I just don't watch a lot of movies. <laughs> and this is probably one you won't watch because Six Feet Under was an HBO episode, but it was about a family who owned a funeral home and every story in the beginning started with someone dying. Oh. You know, me leaving here and getting to my, you know, showing us talking, getting to the car, slipping down the steps <gasps> and dying. So it was always... The, a death story in the beginning. And then through the seasons, it has one of the all-time, which you can watch on YouTube, one of the all-time best endings of, like, the history of television in terms of just the daughter playing her life back as she's going down the road to start her life Mm. and all the things that happen. And then it shows all the characters and what happened to them. I mean, it's it's, it's a tearjerker in the mm-hmm. song. I think it's by Sia. Uh, it's so beautiful, but it is for me. It's a metaphor for life. I I feel like my story is a book, and I try to live it, accepting all the characters that life wrote into my story, as opposed to living my life in the way that my publisher would have liked for me to write it for popularity reasons. I love that. That's amazing. Thank you so much for being here. I knew fun. this was going to be good. <laughs> I, I, like I said, I'm so inspired by you and I'm so grateful to have you in my life. So thank you so Same much. here, Max. And now that I know we have so much in common, which comes first, fate or destiny? It's a great question. Wow. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. I am honored and I don't, and no pressure. You know, if somebody comes in and you want to make them the first guest, but no, I am honored to literally be the first guest rather yeah. than the first guest to air. Not, I don't need that. Do what's no, best you for will you. be the first guest. That's, that's an honor. That's an honor because what I know for sure is that this is going to be another part of your therapy. I think so too. I think ultimately in all my trying to figure out exactly where I'm going with it or whatever, I think each conversation is healing in a different way. And I I totally agree with you. All the people that sit on the Maxine couch (laughs) will, will, will have a story that changes you. Yeah. And that's all the dolls that come into the Black Doll Affair, either in a big way or a light way, is a part of that story called Maxine Callum. So... Thanks so much for listening to the Mother of Monarch podcast. I always say, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. So if you have any comments or know who you want to hear next, send me a message at motherofmonarch at outlook.com or Instagram at motherofmonarch. I always love to hear from you. I'm sending you strength and positivity for your week ahead. Catch you next time.